All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, everybody. Before we start, a heads up. There is some cursing in this episode and a discussion about, well, some of the discussion is about bodies and body parts, certain body parts. If you're listening with people of an age who maybe, I don't know, you don't feel like having them hear it, then put some headphones on. If you have already got headphones on or you don't care, get ready for a treat. I just remember having a conversation with a friend of mine about a sexual encounter that she had and about the testicles in that sexual encounter. (laughs) And then she just texted me a week later and was like, what is the average testicle size? And I was like, I bet I can answer that with data. (laughs) If you can answer that question with data, is there anything data can't do? I'm Manoush Samarodi, your guide to this accelerating world. And we talk about all kinds of subjects on this show. What dating apps have done to romance. Finding the right amount of screen time for yourself, your kids. What it would mean to live in a world where Alexa dresses you on a daily basis. Those are just some of the topics we've covered recently. But the point is, everything is moving fast. Our lives are changing extremely quickly thanks to technology and media. And sometimes... It's hard to find someone who is keeping up with it all. But once in a while, I come across someone who is doing more than keeping up. They are making sense of it all. And note to self, when you find that person, you look and watch and listen to everything they do. They become a great lens to the internet, and in this case, to data. I want to introduce you to the wonderful Mona Chalabi. She is at The Guardian, where she tracks everything that she finds interesting and therefore makes it interesting to her audience with data. She's a total awesome nutcase. (laughs) Here's one of the things that she does that is just so cool. She draws by hand these incredible charts that illustrate answers to questions you didn't know you had or you knew you had these questions, but you didn't want anyone to know except for maybe Google. Mona sees you. <laughs> Mona Chalopy, you're sitting here finally in the studio with me. I am. I love you. I, love I, you I, too, I don't Manish. know how else to say it. Um, but what I find so special about the work that you do is it's so when people say data and statistics, like usually it's like But your stuff is so weird and interesting (laughs) and about things that we actually want to know, like average female hairiness, for example. Or you did an entire series about, like, different, well, women's um, vulvas. How do you decide what sort of data you're going to look at? 
on a day-to-day basis? Is it tied to the news? Is Mm. it tied to something your friends are talking about? Honestly, the strategy changes so much from, like, week to week and subject to subject. So sometimes it will be about the news. Like, I'll see that another shooting has happened in this country and I will think, okay, I want to do something on gun control or I want to do something about who the perpetrators of this violence are and look at that through statistics. Sometimes it is through subjects that, like, come up over dinner with my friends. That's really exciting too. Like, what is the average testicle size? And so I looked it up and then I had this idea of kind of, like, I'm really excited by the potential of visualizations. And so I, I thought, okay, what if I show it to scale on an iPhone success? <laughs> so, yeah, and you can place your balls, if you so desire, Come on. onto an iPhone success and see if they match up to the statistical average. Okay, so we'll link to that, guys. You also did something else about how puberty and testicle size relates to voice. And that's what I find so interesting is it's not just like numbers. It's about seeing the numbers, which if I had been able to do that when I was a kid, I think I would have actually liked math. Oh, good. That's so good to hear. That's so good to hear. Yeah, I I really do. In any case, the other way that you do it is through sound. Is that new? It is new. And it was the result of actually doing a conference. And I kind of gave one of my spiels at this conference about how I designed these data visualizations. And we did a and a at the end. And there was a woman in the front who had a white cane and like dark glasses the whole way through. And I really, really wanted her question. So at the end of it, I went and asked her and she was like, what are you doing for me? And honestly, the answer was nothing. So I thought... Let's uh, pause right there and, and play that data visualization of a boy's voice in puberty. Hi, my name is Tom. This is how I sound with testicles that are one milliliter. This is how I sound with testicles that are five milliliters. This is how I sound with testicles that are 10 milliliters. This is how I sound with testicles that are 15 milliliters. This is how I sound with testicles that are 20 milliliters. This is how I sound with testicles that are 25 milliliters. This is how I sound with testicles that are 30 milliliters. But I'm sorry, Mona, after I listened to that, I was like, so do all men with very deep voices have ginormous testicles? No. That is not what I'm saying. And that's what a lot of people inferred from it, which is really, really interesting too. All it's saying is this is how, as your testicles grow, your voice also deepens. And that's what happens to boys as they go through puberty. So, yeah, that is a really important distinction that you're making. Yeah. Cool. We're going to move on now. Um, (laughs) Too much testicles. (laughs) Well, I feel like we need to be fair and talk about... um, You also made a whole series of charts about female body hair. Mm -hmm. What is quote-unquote normal, how people remove it, how hairiness varies by ethnicity. Like, let's be scientific about this. Where do you get your data from? Mm, I would say that more often than not, my data sources are actually academic studies. There's a ton of government data available. Mm. But most of it is already kind of like digested and analysed by other journalists, right? And I find academic papers really interesting because I feel like very often my job is kind of to act as translator. Yes. These academics are writing in ways that often feel impenetrable to the very people that have an interest in understanding the information that they're publishing. So what I'm trying to do is to translate some of this stuff. And female body hair just 
you know, I had a sense I was like, and this is partly because I'm doing laser at night. I actually have a laser appointment like this, this what are you afternoon. Laser... laser hair removal. Oh. I'm doing laser hair removal oh, right so now. So this was a personal thing. It was partly you... personal because I felt a little bit conflicted about doing the laser hair removal. I was like, this is bullshit. This is the patriarchy that's like making yeah. me remove my body hair, but also like, oh my God, I just want to be free of this and I don't want to have to carry on shaving my armpits. I shave my armpits every, pretty much every single day of my life, I would say, with very few exceptions from the age of maybe 15. Every day? Every day. And Why? like, you have to do it every day because I don't feel clean but like most women in the west remove their armpit hair to some extent like most right and you know that whenever you hear people say most just remember that's anything over 50 percent but most remove their underarm hair for example and we don't assume that men who have underarm hair are dirty but there is an association I think with cleanliness and hygiene for women of removing their body hair that there isn't for men Mm -hmm. so I basically I like just sent out a tweet being like hey you a hairy woman do you want to chat about it And my inbox just exploded (laughs) in this way that was like really beautiful and profound. And one of the things that was so bizarre was how much their stories tracked so closely with one another. So it was like most of them started off by describing an incident in school when more often than not a boy had said something to them about their hair that had made them super self-conscious. Then the next like chapter in these women's stories was going home and having a conversation with their mother. And more often than not, their mother was like, don't worry, I'm going to help. I'm going to show you how to remove this. Hmm. And then the next part of it is just spending so much of their life trying to figure out a hair removal method that causes the minimum amount of pain, of scarring. Like, these things have real repercussions on our lives, like the cost as well of it. I find this balance of data and stories very interesting because we have done these interactive projects Mm -hmm. here on the show. And I don't know, I don't think the data is that clean. Mm. What I don't know what the word is to use, but like we can see trends, we can see things that we should learn more about, mm. but I wouldn't say that it's like, you know, the final word. But then when I look at the stories, that's where things start to get interesting. Yeah. And I have had critics, often men, say she's relying on anecdotes to draw broader conclusions. What do you see as the relationship between the stories and the anecdotes with Mm. the harder data? So the first thing I would say is about what you're doing, I don't see any problem in it because for me, journalistically, it's all about being transparent and honest about the limitations of your findings, which I feel like at no point have you misrepresented. Right, definitely. There was this map that was being circulated on the internet about where redheads live in Europe and everyone loved it. And I discovered it was produced by a eugenicist (gasps) in like the early 19th century. And I was like, I did a write-up of why that map was so horrific and then I included a little Google form at the bottom that was like hey you a redhead tell us where you live and like we'll make a better map and we had like 14,000 responses and everyone understands when I publish the results of that this is a map of where redheads who are guardian readers live <laughs> like at no point am I claiming that yes. this is a definitive map but I still am going to say that it's better than this thing that a eugenicist made To me, the numbers and the human aspect to it are inextricable, not least because it was humans that were responsible for the data gathering. Mm. Like there is no, even if it's like the natural sciences as opposed to the social sciences, humans are still involved. And by the way, that's part of the reason I think why people lose faith in math at a certain point. It's like when you're a kid, you understand when someone has shown you long division, how they got to their answer. You see every step of the workings. And now as adults, we are given the conclusion of those mathematical sums, but never shown the workings. And so people are given this ultimatum, which is either accept my answer or reject it. Yeah. What is the like hardest data set you've ever had? Like nerdiest, (laughs) 
like least interesting, but that you thought people should know about it. And then you really needed to find a way to make people care. Mm. Hmm. Because like, you know, when people eat pizza is interesting. Like we'd want to know when people eat. When yeah. do people eat pizza? Um, well, it's a disgusting slither of people eat it for breakfast. And I don't know who you oh, people are, fine. but I judge you. I, no. no, it's fine. No. Keep doing it. It's actually better than having like sugar cereal. Pizza's better. You get some cheese, a little protein in there. But it's gross. It's cold. It's not supposed to be eaten cold. No, I think it tastes good, actually. You, you keep but, doing that thing. <laughs> the one interesting thing about pizza, by the way, is that most food trends vary massively by racial and ethnic group in the US. Pizza is really consistent. It's almost identical. The likelihood of eating it is consistent across every racial and ethnic group. So it really oh, is like America's food. I know, So I know. the dumbest data point, like when to be by pizza, actually says a whole lot about us. I guess. You're hearing why I wanted to have her on the show forever, right? Okay, when we come back, the more serious, less anatomical side of Mona's work, how she uses data and her extremely creative methods to expand our thinking on race, on gender, and other things that people get a little touchy about. Stick with us. We're back. It's Note to Self. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and we are talking to Mona Chalabi, data editor at The Guardian, the woman behind one of my favorite Instagram feeds, and a woman more comfortable talking about intimate anatomy and taboo subjects than almost anyone we've ever had on this show, which is actually saying quite a lot. But her work isn't just naughty bits, as she might say. Uh, it's political analysis. It is a meditation on race and gender and equality. And sometimes it's turning an incredibly boring assignment into a data revelation. I've had things before where an editor has come to me and said, can you look into this? And I'm like, no way in hell are there going to be numbers on it. Mm. And like, fine, I'm just going to like pretend to type on my computer, but I'm going to like <laughs> pretend to type the thing that I actually should be typing. I'm like, oh, wow, there's a result. So, for example, some colleagues came to me and they were like, can you quantify the way that the press treats Muslim terrorists differently to non-Muslim terrorists? Hmm. And I was like, no way. And then I had a call yesterday with a researcher who has been looking into exactly this. They looked at 10 years worth of headlines and they found that the average terrorist attack gets 15 headlines. The average terrorist attack when it's perpetrated by a Muslim gets 105. And that is uh -huh. when you are controlling for the number of fatalities, controlling for location, controlling for all of these other variables, that gap still stands. Huh. That's really fascinating to me. Well, it's interesting to me also, you know, everything is political these days, right? You grew up in the UK, mm -hmm. but your parents are from, where are your parents from? They're Arab. I always say Arab. Why do you say that? That's so interesting. Because I guess I'm just scared of like people okay so my parents are from iraq and generally whenever you say iraq what's, iraq. Wrong, with, what's wrong with iraq well it's a conversation stopper for sure like i my feel like when i'm at parties um, yeah okay same thing yeah yeah axis of evil yeah, high five <laughs> totally it's got north korean yeah. in the room have a real Ooh, party yeah. a real party <laughs> so good in any case though i want to ask you about women in politics. Mm. Tell me about some of the things that you've discovered. So I guess, like, as much as it is fantastic, this new momentum for change, I wanted to look at the larger course of history and look at how 
slowly that change is happening in a way hopefully to kind of light a bigger fire onto people's asses to be like no we need to like this is urgent so I found that this is as of December 2017 when I did this research of the 10,945 people who have served in Congress ever 319 are women and just 61 are women of colour so, so what that means percentage is that? Uh, 0.6% of all the people that have ever served in Congress were women of colour. So one of the ways that I looked at that was to kind of go back to 1789, first government, yeah. and look at how long it has taken to get us to where we're at today, which is about 20% of Congress is female. And then how long will it take based on that rate of change to get to a Congress that's 50% female? And? Guess a year. When do you think it will be that we'll reach 50%? Um... 20 years? 20 years from now. Yeah. Like, Manoush. me too has made me optimistic. I mean, if you're going to go back to 1789, then it will take until 2376. <laughs> which means... I'm not sure the planet's still going to be here by then. It will be your great, 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 great grandchildren who will see a Congress that is representative of the U.S. nation as a whole. That is so depressing. Yeah. I read an article that you wrote about women trusting their intuition when they're in situations where they don't feel that something is right, but they're, the little voice in their head says, come on, what are the chances? Mm. Or not, you know, it's going to be fine or whatever. I just wonder, like, a person who looks at data and numbers and statistics all day long to write an article about intuition and feelings and knowing yourself, Mm. that's interesting to me. Yeah, because I guess, like, data definitely has its limits. Like, even if statistically I'm in a room with a guy and the chances of him, like, raping me or assaulting me are, like, even if you were to tell me it's one in a million, I feel like... I don't know if you had a similar reaction, but when I was reading the stories of all of these women who had come forward, there was always a moment when they were like, this doesn't feel right. Mm. And by the way, at no point am I claiming that this is therefore their fault for not extricating themselves from that situation because it is always the responsibility of the perpetrator who has every opportunity to stop doing what they're doing. However, I do think that as women, we're constantly gaslighting ourselves. We're constantly told that like, If you don't trust someone, you're being ungenerous, you're being paranoid, you're being, you know, all of these sexist Mm. assumptions about the ways that women think. And I just feel it a lot for myself. Like I've been in jobs that didn't feel right. And I've just kind of thought I've got to stick it out. Like, I don't know. I just feel like we're constantly questioning our guts Mm. in a way that's really damaging. But what's also interesting is some of the statistics that we've been given regarding these things are not correct either. Yeah, that's such an important point. I remember one of the illustrations I did during the Me Too movement, which hopefully is not over just yet, um, (laughs) was I wanted to find out how many people have experienced sexual harassment and not reported it, right? And I found that seven out of 10 people who experience sexual harassment never report it. So the illustration I did was like of an iceberg of pervs, where like you could only see 30% of the pervs above water, because that's true. There's like 70% of the pervs are just among us, you know? Totally. I mean, it's interesting to me also how timing matters when it comes to data. What's going on and politically around us matters. When people feel safe to share their data also matters. Numbers never exist in a vacuum. I know, I know. So we're starting this big series Hmm. about how women portray themselves online. Hmm. How does data fit into how you portray yourself? Does it? Um, 
I guess data helps me understand maybe to what extent I should be portraying myself, if that makes any sense. So one of the things I think about is how if I want to do things that are on screen, as a woman, I have a shelf life. No one wants to put a 50-year-old woman on screen. As disgusting as it is, and like I'm obviously going to try to like be the 60-year-old woman that's like, fuck you, and is still like out there in miniskirts. <laughs> but you said something that really did inspire me. Um, this was in a interview with New York Magazine about your fashion sense. I think about how older women's bodies are treated as decaying artifacts, especially when you're on screen. And as someone who has been doing like you know, on-screen stuff before radio Mm. was doing TV. I totally think about that, too. And so we naturally cover up more and more as each year passes. But then I think, I've always dressed this way despite male attraction, so maybe I'll always dress this way despite male disgust. I hope so. I know, me too. But maybe they won't be disgusted. Maybe we're changing. Maybe we... I mean, whenever people shit talk social media being like, it's so negative for young girls, like all of these portrayals of perfect bodies, I'm like, no, I think you're following the wrong accounts. Like, it's been so reassuring to be like, oh my gosh, everyone has cellulite, everyone has stretch marks, like all of these things are really reassuring. But I still think it feels like um, such an act of courage sometimes to just walk out of the house. Okay, Mona, last question. What are you working on next? Because I can't freaking wait. So I have a podcast called Strange Birds. Look at you. Everybody's got a podcast. They really do, don't they? They kind of do. But some are better than others. I'm gesturing <laughs> towards you at this point. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, that's called Strange Bird. And it involves speaking to my mom and then trying to find out something else about the world after speaking to her. So the first episode was about miscarriage, and I spoke to my mom about experiencing a pregnancy loss herself. And we're working on the second episode right now. And then other than that, I'm working on the spreadsheet of my love life, which I'm constantly <gasps> updating. What's going on there? Shall I show you it? Yes, you please. can't read out bits of it. Okay, okay. Yeah, you promise. I promise. Um, I'll just say like generally what it looks like. I won't. It's so bad. That's a good data set. Oh, my Lord. This is good that you're tracking it, but what are you going to do with all of this? Well, it's interesting, the things that we think of as being data, right? So really, all this consists of is a series of dates, a name and some comments. Like it's You wouldn't even think of it. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I did actually plot it all in this graphic. And like, I noticed really interesting patterns just by plotting the dates. So what I noticed was like, for some reason, I never go on dates on Wednesdays. I don't know why. I think I'm just like... You're tired. Yeah, fuck this. This is just a waste of my time. What else? I noticed that like, this guy that I was dating kind of long term, we'd always hang out on like certain nights of the week. And that like, it was so interesting. We'd like hang out three nights in a row And then clearly we were just sick of each other because then we wouldn't see each other for four days. And then we'd hang out three nights. Like, even just having the date is so revelatory. People love routine and patterns. They love them, right? I know. Ugh, Mona, I love you. Thank you for coming on the show. And listeners, if you're wondering where you can get more of Mona, one of the most consistent places is her Instagram. It is just her name, Mona, M-O-N-A, Chalabi. C-H-A-L-A-B-I. And of course, we'll link to it in our newsletter and on our website, notetoselfradio.org. Oh, and we'll also link to her new podcast that she mentioned, Strange Bird. By the way, I am also on Instagram. Sometimes more often than not, I go through big breaks, but other times I'm really into it. I don't know. I can't decide. You can come find me there. It's Manoush Z, M-A-N-O-U-S-H-Z. Uh, That is also my Twitter handle. 
Um, and it's also, that's my website, manoushz.com. So multiple medias, but my name is not Manoushz, which I think is what some people seem to think. I've had people think that that's my full name, like it's a Polish version of a Persian name. Oh, and the special series that I was talking about with Mona, uh, which is about how women portray themselves online. You guys, that is starting next week. Our team has been cranking on it, and we are so proud of this series. I cannot tell you how much I have learned doing the interviews. There are some extremely important conversations uh, to have right now, and we have some amazing voices sharing some seriously deep and personal truths uh, that we can all learn from. Trace Lissette, Amy Sherald, Barbara Kruger. Who are those people? If you don't know who they are, trust us on this one. You're listening right now, so you trust us already. Okay, I cannot wait for you guys to hear it. For now, the Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, Megan Kunane, and Joe Plord. Many, many thanks to Justine Daum, who has also been on this ride with us. Um, And to answer Mona's question in this episode, who eats pizza in the morning on the team? It's Kat. Kat is our data point. Kat eats pizza in the morning with a fried egg on it because she's actually a gourmand. Wait, but do you heat it up? And she heats it up. So it doesn't have to be cold, Mona. It could be heated up in the morning. Just add that to your your, uh, algorithm, sister. Anyway, Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and thank you for listening. You were on, it's actually my fantasy, Sesame Street. Oh, I wish. I wasn't on Sesame Street. Weren't you? I, I tried for three years to get an interview with the Count, and he eventually said yes. The, the Count came to me. I did not oh, get to go to Sesame Street, but unfortunately. You did do some, like, I came... interviewed him, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was amazing. Yeah, the count is amazing.